Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our whole crew as we ramp ourselves up for this exciting time of year. Uh, I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. So as far as I know, Richard's bag and cowboy hat are packed and Mike's too. You're all you're both heading off to the mountains of Telluride. Uh, You're going to come back, change people and maybe just open a ranch uh, and just watch movies forever, which sounds pretty good. It's like a billion degrees in New York. And I was looking at my closet today, looking at the flannel shirts, just going, I can't wait. It's going to be able to wear this. It's going to be good. But what you wear on the plane is the hard part. Like you are you going to wear shorts to the airport? It's a tough call. No, no, no shorts on the plane. Is that a faux pas? I I think so. It'll be cold. It's air conditioned. Oh, that's true, true. Yeah. Uh, well, welcome to Travel Talk, where we talk about what we <laughs> wear for airports. Uh, so anyway, we're going to talk about uh, what's to come at Telluride and a little bit about Toronto uh, and uh, the piece that Richard wrote kind of summarizing all of this. And then later in the episode, we're going to share an interview that Mike did with Vanity Fair contributing writer Monica Lewinsky and Greg Hahn of BBDO, the advertising agency. They are Emmy nominees, which I think maybe a lot of people didn't know. And uh, Mike, you've known Monica for a long time. So we'll talk more about that conversation you guys had later on. Yes, it was fun. First, uh, Richard, let Let's just turn to start with with the piece that you wrote just about what is exciting about fall festival season. As you noted, like there's you you listed 28 movies. They're all going to premiere in the next two weeks, which is a little overwhelming. Um, how, how did you go about narrowing this down and how overwhelming was it to look at all of this? I mean, it's a lot. But if you go so so when this episode gets posted, Venice will be a day, you know, a day into the festival. And then Telluride is this, this coming weekend and then Toronto. So if you break it down in a sort of like almost like, you know, just by its schedule, then it becomes a little bit more manageable. But I think that like in writing about it as a sort of preview of the whole festival season, you know, you want to pick out what you think are like the big front runners. And I think, you know, so I took some gambles on that and I could be proven massively wrong. Who knows? But I think that the two biggest ones that I, or the three biggest ones that I focused on were First Man, the Damien Chazelle movie, Barry Jenkins's new movie, If Beale Street Could Talk. So they're squaring off against each other again, you know, two years after the Moonlight La La Land uh, wars. And then Widows, the Steve McQueen movie that may be more commercial than an Oscar play, but still, you know, it's Steve McQueen, it's Viola Davis. Like we can't discount it from any kind of awards conversation. Yeah, what's interesting is the three of them that you point out as kind of like recent like Oscar winners, whether Best Director or Best Picture, but there's Alfonso Cuaron lurking around there. We're getting a ton of people who have won major Oscars for filmmaking in the last couple of years all in the mix this year, which makes it feel... Uh, even though it's all kind of mysterious because no one's seen anything and we don't have any competitors for the first half of the year, there's a bunch of heavy hitters like right on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, Roma, uh, the Alfonso Cuaron movie, which is this um, black and white epic set in the 1970s Mexico City that I'm, I believe is very autobiographical for Cuaron. Uh, like that is obviously an event that's playing all three. That's going to be at premiere at Venice. It's going to pass through Telluride and it's going to go to Toronto, which is an interesting thing. I mean, it's shot on 70 millimeter. Uh, it's getting this huge festival push, but it's a Netflix movie. And so... As ever, as we talked about over the past couple of years, like watching uh, how Netflix tries, Ted Sarandos in particular, tries to figure out an awards campaign. They've hired now specific publicists for awards season. They're really putting a push behind it. And Roma seems to be their biggest play. They also have Paul Greengrass's movie, uh, 22 July, about the 2011 terrorist attacks in Norway. So maybe this actually is the year when Netflix, I mean, they had Mudbound, but like they've got serious awards consultant firepower ready for, for on behalf of these two films. And I think I've heard a seriously good buzz about Roma. And the other one I've heard seriously good buzz about from people who've actually seen movies is um, Yorgos Lanthimos' The Favorite. That that people are kind of blown away by it because I think the other movies are amazing, but they're so weird and dark. I mean, we've discussed The Lobster, etc. But like this one, somebody else wrote it. He just came in and did his kind of crazy thing on it. It's it's a royal story, right? And uh, Olivia Coleman is apparently incredible in it. And so that that is a movie... I mean, I'm wondering if McQueen, Chazelle, and Jenkins may... I'm curious to see these movies, but I'm wondering if these may not quite live up to the understandable hope that we have, given the other things that those directors have produced. And I think some of these other things may may jump out. And it sounds like Roma... I mean, it certainly has a lot of prestige indicators, you know, um, built into it, starting with the black and whiteness of it all and the kind of relevance of the topic that it's about migrants, you know, actually living their lives in this psychopathic environment that we live in. So I think it's really interesting. I mean, I'm going into these festivals with 
three categories in mind, like the movies that are hyped that are going to die when people see them, the movies that no one's even thinking about that are going to jump into the conversation. This year's I, Tanya to, to Yes, an sure. Or even, remember Ladybird last year, Katie, you and I were sitting, yeah. it was 9 a.m., we're sitting with giant coffees. I had a little bit of a hangover and we're just like weeping. I'm weeping yeah. into my Starbucks and I'm like, this movie is going to go places. Well, and that was something that I don't think was on my radar at R until Telluride when it showed up there and people came out of that raving. So Telluride can yes. often be an interesting spot for you to be like, I didn't know they had a movie. Yeah. And then the third category are the ones that come in with hype and just get a giant bounce and are like, you know, at yeah. the rim of uh, Best Picture winning for the rest of the season. So it'll be fun to see which ones are which. I'm obviously just going off of trailers. I mean, general hype and then trailers that I've watched. And I have to say that, like, you know, I, I'm ready and willing to be proven wrong. But every time I watch the first man trailer, I'm just like deeply uninterested. And I am a Damien Giselle fan. And I don't know what it is. I don't, I'm not normally anti-astronaut movie, but there's something like... However, that trailer's cut is not getting me. And I was holding off on watching the If Beale Street Could Talk trailer because um, I just love Moonlight so much and I am worried that this won't meet my expectations. But I was reading Richard's great roundup of these films on the website this morning and, and I was like, okay, I finally have to watch it. And I was just holding my breath the whole movie, uh, the whole trailer, just in like sort of delight and awe of how it's cut. And so... I gotta say, like Jenkins, I'm still on the hype train. Chazelle, I'm like, I, I don't know. It's not. Maybe I need more music from Damien Chazelle and less fewer astronauts. Well, is is First Man at um, Venice, or do we think it'll be at Telluride, or is the Toronto Cinesphere premiere uh, where we're going to see this for the first time? Richard, do you know? No, yeah, First Man is going to be at all three. Oh, okay. So, all right. I'm just thinking of that. Um, the big IMAX screening at Toronto is so splashy that uh, there, it's interesting that they're that they're selling it so hard that way. Well, the interesting thing about First Man, well, there's a lot of interesting things about it, but like this is Universal that's putting this out. This is a this is a big studio movie, um, and so yeah, they're they're giving it the kind of the real rollout. And not only are they doing it in IMAX in Toronto, but at IMAX screenings of various movies. I think Mission Impossible was one this summer. They would do a special four minute presentation of First Man where they would I think they showed like the moonwalk or whatever like the moon landing basically scene did they show the, the musical number during the space shuttle parking uh, traffic that's right jam that's exactly in right. Houston yeah yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Great. few people know that in the 60s there were so many space shuttles that <laughs> yeah. they, there were traffic jams <laughs> and Ryan Gosling lands on the moon and moonwalks <laughs> and there's a whole Michael Jackson Emma Stone sings about Paris for some reason but I think that Joanna going what you you know your sort of initial like hesitance about this movie like for me it's a little bit not disappointing, but sort of like, eh, that like, after Chazelle had these two huge buzzy breakout films, won an Oscar as a director, then kind of goes to like, a studio movie about NASA in the 60s, which is like some baby boomer shit. Youngest ever uh, Best Director winner, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So why not do 80s or 90s nostalgia, dude? Or so Yeah, something. I mean, just something that isn't like, you know, I, I mentioned in the piece that like stuff about NASA tends to do very well at the Academy. Uh, the Right Stuff, uh, Apollo 13, Hidden Figures, like all Best Picture nominees. It's a very safe play from him. Um, not that I think he made a movie to win Oscars, but like, yeah. it just feels like oh, that could have been something else. And and whereas I think with Bar in, Bar in Barry Jenkinson's case, like him following up Moonlight, which is that's a really tricky follow up because that movie was like seismic, like that was yeah. such a big thing, and no one you know knew who he was really. With a J uh, James Baldwin adaptation, that feels like an evolution in a way, in an interesting way. Although, what weren't they both? Wasn't he was working on it already? Wasn't he when Moonlight came out? I think. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But still. Yeah, yeah. Still. well, I mean, he's on his artistic path, mm -hmm. and and you see Damien making this leap over to like more explicitly commercial stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, La La Land is the is the work of someone who aspires to do commercial work, right? I mean, it's like scrappy, but it's a big crowd pleasing movie. You know, that's I think that's his his heart is there. So, and I have no problem if uh, you know anointing a new sort of studio approved you know a kind of auteur yeah like an, yeah. another christopher nolan or whatever mm -hmm. he he's you know aiming to be um but you know I'm, I'm i'm curious about it and i think mike you're right to point out the favorite i have heard you know some people get to see these things before the festivals and uh everyone i've talked to who's seen the favorite is like it's very good and even from people who weren't fans necessarily of the lobster or killing the sacred deer as i understand it like it's not that it's like weird lanthimos it's like really accessible i've heard weird accessible <laughs> you know like weird weird in a fun like in a fun i can get on board not like does the dog die.com uh you know sort of thing yeah normal um, <laughs> people are enjoying the weirdness of it 
<laughs> right, right, right. Um, can we talk about another 2016, uh, 2017 Oscar contender that I had a fun time with their trailer this morning, which is uh, whatever it is Viggo Mortensen is doing in the Green Book. Oh, my God. Yeah. He's doing like this hardcore bada bing sort of really big performance. And I can't tell from the trailer. You know, Richard points out in the piece that this is directed by Peter Farrelly. It's a 1960 set sort of buddy road movie with Marshall Ali and Viggo Mortensen curing racism, I think, with music or something like that. But um, like the trailer sort of got me and then lost me and then got me again, where I'm just like, I, I, both these actors are so good in everything they do that I can't imagine this is going to be as like preachy and saccharine as I'm afraid it's going to be. But at the same time, I don't know. I'm just curious what you guys think of this and if this is a potential play for Vigo again. Yeah, I was so sold on everything Vigo was doing in that trailer and I wasn't expecting it because you're right, Joanna, the whole like, hey, I'm from Jersey. Like it just, it feels like too much, but he's such a good actor that you're like, okay, yeah, he's this guy. Why not? I find it appealing. Uh, that trailer weirdly like worked on me and the Peter Farrelly aspect of it, you know, who's he's mostly known for these kind of big body comedies with his brother that I feel like only adds to the appeal in a strange way. It's like, okay, what can he do in this vein? I was most taken by Mahershala Ali in that trailer. He's doing something too. They're both doing very big character kind of things. He's speak Ali is speaking in this kind of like clipped sort of very formal cadence and, um, I don't know. I feel like that one could kind of sneakily... Uh, that feels like a, a front-runner for like the, the Toronto audience prize. You know what I mean? Mm. Can I throw out a, a theory about Mahershala Ali and then also Olivia Coleman Because we saw that teaser for True Detective Season 3 starring Mahershala Ali. Uh, and Olivia Coleman's also going to be in The Favorite. And then The Crown Season 3, which is going to premiere in December sometime, I assume. So it'll be interesting if you've got these acting Oscar contenders who have incredible work showing on television at the ex- same time. It's like the reverse Norbit. Uh, I don't know that we can count on Mahershala Ali winning another Oscar, but who knows? Um, but it could be interesting to watch them kind of go between these different roles and like have week after week shows like, oh, no, I'm great. You really want to give me an award. It's going to be fun because like, uh, you know, those of us who pay attention like have been like clocked Olivia Coleman a few years ago. Yeah. I know. And now this year, like everyone's going to know who she is because of these the favorite and and the crown like um and that and it's great because she's she's the best she's such a good actress and such you know such a kind of particular presence that i'm i'm really excited for her um both royal shows or whatever she's playing two queens yes she's playing yeah. two queens so there's a lot of resonance there two dope queens it is two dope queens <laughs> but yeah i think katie you're right it'll it's gonna be very easy for people to sort of for for feelings about one performance to bleed into the other uh, if everyone's watching The Crown. I don't want to throw cold water on Katie's theory, but The Crown season three isn't back till 2019. Damn. Maybe early 2019. Uh, what if it's in February, right? Just in time for voting. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe early early 2019. Oh, I wanted to do my like my usual thing, which is uh, play the, the smug book reader and talk about three book, book adaptations that I'm excited about, which is The Hate You Give, The Sisters Brothers, and Beautiful Boy, all three of which uh, I've read. And uh, I think I've already talked before about how I think Beautiful Boy, uh, you know, which is this Steve Carell, Timothy Chalamet um, addiction based on true story. Based on two um, books, isn't it? Have you read both of the books, Joanna? Yes, I have. Wow. Because the, chef, the chefs, Nick and David Chef, are Bay Area people. So I've, re- I've read the memoirs. And um, I think what I said before is that I, I feel like the chefs, because they have spent years on the book talk circuit, like giving um, presentations about this time in their life and what it meant to them and and how they grew from it and all of that sort of stuff. They are going to be huge assets, I think, on the award season circuit, like more more so than like even like a Tanya Harding would be or something like that, just because they are well-trained at speaking so effectively uh, about this experience. And so I like, I, I don't mean to sound hugely cynical, but like that, you know, I just can't help but see that as a, as a massive asset for this particular project. I mean, I, I may have said this, before and we'll, I want to come back, Joanna, to what else you want to say about this. But I, I just want to throw this out there. There was talk last season in Timothy's camp that he needed to not worry too much, let Gary Oldman like win the Oscar and view it as a walk up to winning this year. I mean, they really they've seen this as a as a very serious opportunity for a long time, like before I think the movie was even finished. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah. I remember you talking about that. And I love Richard's like, you know, I've heard Richard say it, I think, like four times now that they need to run Timothy Chalamet and supporting so much so that I really think we should get little gold men sh- shirts made like that say like run run Timmy and supporting or something like that. Well, I, yeah. Because I think they are still debating it. They're trying to figure out like which because yeah. there's, there's kind of two leads in the film, right? Yeah, yeah. S- but I, I think I think 
something we talked about last year was uh, the Academy's discomfort with, with giving Oscars to very young men. Like they'll give it to young women uh, in lead, but not necessarily very young men. And I think they'd be much more comfortable giving Timothy Chalamet a supporting um, Oscar, you know, with whatever ageism is at play there for younger men. Well, also he's had the call me by your name run. So it's not like he's this new fresh face. I mean, he, he is, but like he's a, he's a known quantity. So if they decide they like him again, it's like, okay, we're not just taking a gamble on some young kid. You're, you know, the future of Hollywood. I have, I've also heard that the people who have seen the hate you give feel like a little mixed on it already. Um, that book is, was very powerful. like has a huge built-in audience. So, like, I think it'll be massively successful no matter what the actual Oscar chances are for him. Yeah, it's getting a big, uh, like, Friday night premiere at Toronto. Um, so, you know, they're, they're clearly um, putting some attention on it. Um, you know, it's a big festival for the star of the film, Amanda Stenberg. She's in that, and she's also in When Hands Touch, uh, which is um, Ama Asante's movie about a biracial girl living in Nazi Germany and falling in love, I believe, with a, a Nazi soldier played by George McKay. Um, so she's going to she's gonna be a presence, Amanda Stenberg, at the festival. Hate You Give is probably the biggest YA book of the last couple of years. Clearly, all eyes are on that. I've heard, again, like you said, Joanna, mixed things about it. But when those movies premiere with those audiences at those big theaters in Toronto and everyone's excited to be there, like certain things can happen. Uh, I'll hearken back to my theory of everything when I stumbled out of that. And I was like, that's the best movie ever made. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he did win an Oscar for it. So um, I don't know. I think that like I think stuff that's that's crowd pleasing and and rousing crowd rousing, I guess, like uh, that, that that's a perfect kind of thing for for Toronto. Um, So I think Hate You Give will be pretty pretty high on people's uh, you know register when, when it premieres. Well, crowd-pleasing makes me want to bring up uh, the thing that you saved until the very end of your preview, Richard, which I think is as good a sign as any. It's something being like maybe not the most anticipated, but right up there. Uh, a Star is Born just feels like this massive yeah. thing waiting for us. And it's going to premiere at Venice on Friday. So we'll know kind of how crowds respond to it really soon. Um, but it's just, it's just looking so massive from where we are. I rewatched the trailer, which Richard, as far as I know, you watched daily uh like you and david sims and bobby finger just tweet gifts yeah. from it as, as much as possible um and i feel like i'm becoming more and more sold on it just by thinking about it um it, it, it just feels huge right yeah i mean who knows that 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 could be a sort of like confirmation bias thing where like the the sort of world that i'm peering in on like bo- the bobby fingers and david sims of the world like who are like obsessed with the trailer and the the the, the, the her like song cue and <laughs> toward the end of it um and bradley cooper saying i just want to get another look at you uh like there's a lot about it <laughs> wow. but um that was very that was very gitter done, uh, Richard. <laughs> yeah, it, it'll be the new uh, Sling Blade. But there was a review of it that that like this guy posted, not knowing that there was an embargo. Uh, he's a producer. I think he has a podcast that was basically like ca- comparing it to like Cassavetes and like you know the, the sort of like masterpieces of the '70s golden age of cinema. Like he really went in on this movie like in a positive way. Um, and you know he's not a a, a critic, or whatever. But like this guy loved this movie. Uh, and so that gives me reason to hope. And no matter what, I think it's something I said in the in the thing I wrote, like if it's a commercial crowd pleaser, but a critical failure or the opposite or both or whatever, like whatever it is, it's going to be something. Yes. And I think we're all hungry for something. Yeah. Are we really buying that this was that this was a mistake that this was put up? Because the thing I heard before that went up was that Bradley Cooper was showing it to all of his friends in Hollywood, but keeping it away from critics. Um, for whatever reason, part maybe just to kind of like, you know, have the maximum impact, but that he was really proud of it, but that it sounded to me like he wanted the industry to get behind it first. And I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but I just could imagine like a little bit of a calculated, like, let's have the first review of this come from a filmmaker who gets what I'm trying to do rather than some asshole critic on the internet. I don't know. I, I I would buy that totally. Yeah. I heard um, out of LA, I heard that like from some people who have seen it or talked to people who have seen it that like you have to either go all in and, and buy in on what Bradley Cooper's doing, his sling blade thing, or you are out in the cold in this movie. In terms of his performance? Yeah, just like we were just talking about like Vigo and Mahershala and like big performances, like the the voice and the grizzled and like all of the stuff that he's doing. Like Lady Gaga is not the obstacle, that it's like potentially Bradley Cooper that's the obstacle. I'm all in on the trailer. I'm, I'm pro A Star is Born. I'm really here for it. The other thing I've heard is that it is not different in any way demonstrably from the Barbra Streisand film, which like I actually don't know how many like 
how enduring that film is, is like, I tried to watch that, I think like last year and it's like three hours long and, and like, I, I enjoyed it, but like, I don't know that that's like a film that so many people have seen that they'll be like, ugh, this is just a retread of Barbara and Chris Christopherson, which is a retread of Judy and like, et cetera, et cetera. I would guess that most people are familiar with the title. They're like, oh, that's yes. a thing. Right. Like that's exactly. existed before. But beyond that, I don't think that like there's an intimate familiarity beyond like the realm of like gay men in their middle, in their middle age, like like <laughs> who are like intimately familiar with the, the Barbara Streisand movie, which is not good. Like the, I guess the last thing I'll say on it is that I don't know how much, like how much the Academy class has changed uh, in the last couple years. But like, I would, I would comfortably say a couple years ago that the Academy was so enamored of Bradley Cooper that there is no doubt in my mind that they would give him a, a directing nod for this. Like, do you know what I mean? He got nominated three years in a row exactly. as Best Actor. Or maybe one supporting. Anyway, he got nominated three years in a so row. So, like, you know, and, and Mike has talked so many times about, like, the the warmth which with, with which, uh, like, awards bodies accept, like, double, triple threats or whatever. So, like, Lady Gaga getting, getting an Oscar for Best Song and Bradley Cooper at least getting nominated for Best Director feels so certain to me. I, that's... Sight unseen. That's how I feel. Well, that that leads us to another movie um, that will be, I believe, premiering at Telluride. Uh, Joel Edgerton's Boy Erased. Oh, another another movie directed by an actor, or who was yeah. the person yeah, 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 an actor yeah. first, and and starring the actor, yeah. at least in some degree. And so that has Lucas Hedges is in the lead there. So Timmy and Lucas are are back in the in the mix again this year. And Troy Sivan, who uh, is this young gay pop star, well, child actor turned YouTuber turned pop star, he has a supporting role in the movie, but also wrote a song for it that I, I did ask someone who saw it. I said, does it play in the movie? Because that's the new kind of criteria for best original song. And it can't just play over the, the closing credits. Um, and it does. So like we could have Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper, Troy Sivan all singing at the Oscars uh, <laughs> next February, which, you know, like, so RIP gay people, like that's going to be a big deal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but Boy Erased as a movie, I'm 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 pretty intrigued by the trailer. is pretty effective. Um, that again is based on a memoir uh, similar to The Beautiful Boy. You know, with a with a bunch of powerhouse actors, Russell Crowe, Nicole Kidman, uh, play uh, Lucas Hedges' parents. And you know, I feel like when a movie says we're going to open at Telluride, there's a degree of confidence there. Yes. You know, it, sometimes it doesn't work, like Battle of Sex, Battle of the Sexes, which I think was unfairly uh, overlooked last year. But sometimes, you know, with Lady Bird or Moonlight, like a, mm-hmm. a t- Telluride premiere is like a, a really big launching pad. I have an idea to save the Oscars. Lady Gaga could sing, giving out the Best Cinematography Award. Oh. Like the Below the Line, just sing all the Below the Line Awards. <laughs> yeah. And now for a 30-minute yeah, yeah. <laughs> presentation. A yeah. musical tribute to then, art director. Yeah. Then I would, enjoy, I would enjoy seeing those awards. That would be pretty good. Um, the, the Choice One song plays over the trailer if you guys want to like hear it i don't know if it's available in full but it's on the trailer so and it seems very pretty yeah it's like a nice song it's lovely well speaking of uh movies with you know singing in it or performance like star is born um i will see star is born on friday morning next friday in toronto and then just a few hours later i will see vox lux with natalie portman uh, which is written and directed by Brady Corbett, um, who uh, made The Childhood of a Leader, another actor-turned-director. And we actually ran a first look of the movie on, on VF.com. Uh, it's just a, shot, a long tracking shot of, we assume, Natalie Portman walking to the stage in some sort of you know glittery David Bowie-esque costume. So no one knows what the heck that movie is or what it's about or what the tone of it's going to be. Billed as a 21st century portrait, I believe. Anyway, it's premiering at Venice. It's very pretentious, very vague, but like... Who the heck knows? Like that could be something, and that's 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 one of the few I feel like that no one had really been clocking until very recently, um, and those are often really fun movies. Because yeah, I feel like you had been clocking it, Richard. You should give yourself credit. Well, I mean, like for a couple of months, but like you know, I've been aware of Beale Street and Boy Erase for like a year. You know, that's because you. Well, you were aware of Vox Lux because you were a Jennifer Ely like fan website, right? Well, right. So I'm the, I'm the, yeah I'm the. <laughs> Exactly. The webmaster. I'm the webmaster for yeah, EliFreak.net. <laughs> uh, and Richard, you had one other actor-director you wanted to get into as well, although not starring in his film as far as I know. Oh, yeah. Jonah Hill, uh, mid-90s, which is a movie that, again, I didn't know anything that didn't, I didn't even know it existed until A24, very kind of just like, you know, dropped a, a trailer for it um, without any warning uh, a couple months ago. Um, and it's this, you know, 90s, obviously, set L.A. skate scuzzy punk kid thing um, that I guess maybe is loosely based on Jonah Hill's childhood, although he grew up in Brentwood and like I don't know if that's like really 
if that's what he was like when he was a teenager. But anyway, it, that seems A24's kind of big play this fall. Um, it'll world premiere at Toronto. And A24 actually has kind of a quiet slate this year. They don't have yeah. anything at Telluride. Yeah, very oddly quiet. Um, so maybe this could be a thing. And I feel like that sort of confident trailer drop without any sort of warning um, indicates a confidence in, in the movie. But yeah, we'll see. I don't, I, you know, I, I would have said a year ago, pre-Telluride, that like, the Oscars will never like a teen movie, and then Lady Bird came along. That's much, you know, much more traditional kind of movie in a way, but than mid '90s looks to be. But I was watching the trailer. Uh, I've watched it a couple times. The um, mid '90s trailer, and I mean, it definitely feels less approachable than Lady Bird. More maybe the vein of the Florida Project, you know, in terms of like the spareness and very like hardcore indie way that it feels. Uh, that being said, once again, if we're going to talk about actors that the Academy likes, Jonah Hill is one of them, and also I've seen the. 10 episodes of Maniac, his Netflix series that's dropping in September. And he, I think, is really incredible in it. So we want to talk about like TV boosting someone's profile. Like if Jonah Hill has this interesting, has this great TV uh, project. I loved it. I don't know. Maybe not, not everyone will. Like, you know, that, that might sort of get everyone warmed up on Jonah Hill and uh, interested in seeing him in the director category. Jonah Hill has also become a fashion icon, an unlikely fashion icon in the past oh, yeah. uh, in the past year or so. The scumbro look. There was a whole day dedicated to him in Williamsburg at a bar a while ago. Really? He's a uh, Oh yeah, he's taken off. So, uh watch what Jonah Hill wears on red carpets at the He's very having least. he's having a moment. A Jonah there's a Jonah Hill moment. All I know about mid 90s is that I emailed Nicolette uh, at A24 and I said is there a party for that at Toronto if there is I want to go because oh. that'll be a fun yeah, right? <laughs> take me with you yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes, right? that will be fun like that, yeah. I agree and, <laughs> Please and, invite and me. she said well I can't promise American Honey style you know debauchery but like <laughs> yes there will be yeah oh yeah I, people still talk about that was that a good party. party that was a good one Maybe maybe let's close it out by all of us just kind of picking the thing, that, not necessarily that we want to see, but that we want to know about. Like, what is the biggest mystery for you at these festivals in the next two weeks that you're just dying to have an answer for? Mine is really A Star is Born. Like, is this thing going to be a huge juggernaut that's going to suck up a lot of oxygen and kind of take on Black Panther for, like, is this the big studio hit that could win Best Picture? Or is it going to be a kind of a kooky, you know, passion project for some movie stars who get to do whatever they want? Yeah. That, that's my big question. It's good you mentioned Black Panther because when I was writing this kind of preview piece and looking at what's coming, I was like, I still think Black Panther could win. Yeah. You know, like yes. definitely. The sort of special category aside, the, you know, popular film or whatever. Like, I really think that Black Panther is still a front runner. And also, you know, the thing about Star is Born is if it's really good... Then Bradley Cooper is a big movie director. <laughs> right. You know, which is like, yeah. His Clint Eastwood plan. I mean, this guy knows what he's doing. Well, he's Clint Eastwood the... was supposed to do this movie. Clint Eastwood was right. supposed to do Star with Beyonce. Yeah. yeah a while I got to figure out who's my Clint Eastwood. You know, I think we all need to. I was <laughs> who's going like... to turn you into a powerhouse <laughs> yeah. director? Yeah. <laughs> but just like, who do you, whose tra- career track do you just follow? It's kind of amazing. It does seem like that's what Bradley Cooper is doing. Yeah. It's just like, I want to get from here to there. And this guy did it. Let me, you know. I will pursue. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that my biggest question mark, and it's kind of a boring one maybe, is like, you know, as we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, like, is this when Netflix gets its Best Picture nomination? Mm -hmm. You know, they have two seemingly very strong contenders, although two movies not set in the United States, one of one of which is not in English. Uh, the other, the, the English one has no star. You know, neither of them have any big names in them. So that th- those are impediments, I guess. But like, you have a Paul Greengrass movie and an Alfonso Cuaron movie, like in your in your hopper, ready to go. Like yeah. that feels like big. And if they can break through that barrier, finally, that will be kind of precedent changing. You know, I think it'll you know that'll be a big deal. Uh, I'm going to pick one that Richard, I think you have talked me into being really excited for, which is The Front Runner, the movie in which uh, Hugh Jackman plays Gary Hart, the uh, kind of not the earliest political sex scandal, but kind of a major one before our current era. It's directed by Jason Reitman, who had Tully, which was so great. And I feel like, Richard, you floated the theory that this could be Hugh Jackman's best actor win, um, which at this point does feel like, oh, yeah, he should have won an Oscar by now. So I hope that it lives up to that hype because I do think Hugh Jackman could be just really fun to have on an Oscar campaign and coming off of his two huge hit last year like it all seems to be coming together for him and i hope the movie can uh, can live up yeah. well, i think their their awards consultants had scored an early win when gary hart was one of the pallbearers for john mccain and i, th- I was very yes, impressed yeah, by their skill at ne- navigate negotiating <laughs> that was some real yeah, yeah yeah yeah. well done guys yeah, yeah. if I you're mean, listening 
I mean, I yeah, I think that like Jackman, like you know, uh, well now that Ethan Hawke has spoken out against Logan, like I, maybe Logan is in in jeopardy, but like, um, but Greatest Showman made fucking five hundred million dollars. Like right. Hugh Jackman had a huge twenty seventeen, and that lasted into early twenty eighteen because Greatest Showman just kept playing and playing and playing. So like, I mean, Greatest Showman is still on YouTube, like everywhere yeah. you look, so it's still playing. Somewhere. So Hugh Jackman has momentum, and and Jason mm-hmm. Reitman has a little momentum off of Tully, which people liked mm-hmm. out of Sundance. So I think that's a good one to keep an eye on. Katie, I think you're right. I'll go with uh, one we haven't talked about, which is The Old Man and the Gun, which is David Lowry's, uh, like, and this is the final performance from Robert Redford, allegedly. I never believe anyone when they say they're retiring. <laughs> Nor <should laughs> but, you. like, it's an interesting choice. Uh, you know, I, I we we love, or I think in this house, we, we love David Lowry, um, but it's like, you know, it's not middle of the road necessarily as a choice for Robert Redford, and so I'm hoping it's actually something very, like, you know, something that penetrates a little deeper than some of the, like, this is Robert Redford being craggy and great in a few movies in the past few years that I'm just sort of like, okay, fine. But maybe he'll go, like, really, really hard for his, like, last, allegedly, uh, film. And and maybe, you know, the Academy will want to give him um, that that farewell. I don't know. Yeah, and I think it's going to be really nice just watching him kind of flirt and have conversations with, with Sissy Spacek. Like, <laughs> that's a good pairing. Yeah, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm into that. You know, it is funny, though, that, like, that'll be at Telluride, I'm pretty sure, that Redford could potentially end his acting career up in the Rocky Mountains, but not at Sundance. <laughs> like, How totally annoyed are like, the Sundance programmers? They're, they're like, like oh, dude. Yeah, come on. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it was an easy, it was an easy uh, layup, but... um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I got teary at the first trailer for that. I think it, I think it looks great. And and yes, Joanna, in this house we like David Lowry. Okay, so we're going to share the interview that Mike did with Monica Lewinsky and Greg Hahn, two Emmy nominees for the PSA that they made. Um, Mike, you have been following, uh, you've been friends with Monica for a long time. You've been following her anti-bullying work. So uh, can you talk about like what brought her to making a PSA that got an Emmy nomination? Yeah, you know, Monica, so yeah, Monica and I randomly met 18 years ago, I think, we were volunteering, um, reading with kids up in East Harlem, and we've kept in touch through the years, and it's been amazing to see her in the last few years really find her voice and be able to, I think there was a long period of time where, you know, understandably, she didn't really want to be out in public that much, and really in the wake of this Vanity Fair article that she wrote, she's been, I think, rediscovered in a way by a younger generation that kind of had never really questioned the treatment of her in our society and suddenly was like, wait a minute, why did we blame the, you know, the young early 20s intern for the presidential scandal and take the side of all the people saying it was all her fault and she was an evil person. And so through that time, you know, she got treated very shabbily by a lot of people, basically everybody. (laughs) And so I think she has a unique perspective on the question of bullying. I love that she has made that a cause. She's sought to kind of help other people deal with pain that she really knows about. She's kind of tireless thinking of ideas and talking to people. She's got a great network of people. And so she and Greg Hahn, who uh, also joined the interview, is the he's um, at BBDO, the advertising agency. They put their heads together on a PSA that would really show the human cost of the kinds of uh, abuse that people sort of dish out and and take on the internet every day. And I think everybody who works in our business knows about this, especially the women. I mean, I think every woman on the internet just knows that there is a lot of horrible stuff that happens every day. One of the things that she says in the interview, Mike, that I thought was interesting is that uh, she realized that she had so rarely been insulted in person that most of the attacks that had come to her had been in the media, obviously, and then online through anonymous people. And what this PSA deals with is, the, you know, what it looks like when online bullying happens in person. Uh, and it, it was just interesting to me because you think of Monica, like you said, as someone who's been treated so unfairly, but it's been by people who weren't willing to say it to her face, uh, which just kind of says a lot about the kind of attack she's endured. Um, so she, she, it's interesting how she talks about that. Yes, I think that that insight really kind of drove um, uh, this idea. So they're up for a Creative Arts Emmy. They will be given out at the Microsoft Theater in Los Angeles on September 8th. So I hope she wins. Uh, They have actually quite a a good group of ads that they're up against. Um, But this one's really, really powerful. And I hope everyone will watch it and enjoy the conversation. I am thrilled to be here today with Greg Hahn, the Chief Creative Officer of the ad agency BBDO. 
And my friend, the anti-bullying advocate and Vanity Fair contributing editor, Monica Lewinsky. Welcome, guys. Hi. Thank you. It's great to have you here. And we're here on the occasion of you guys being nominated for an Emmy. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So... Every year after Emmys, after Oscars, people go around calling, saying, where were you when you found out? So where were you, Monica Lewinsky, when you found out you got this Emmy nomination? Uh, Well, I was in Australia, and it was about 5.30 in the morning, and I kind of, you know, got a sip of water, and then, of course, obviously checked my phone. And I had this email from Greg, and I, I open it, and it's like, congratulations, you know, you can now add Emmy nominee to your resume. And there was a link, and I was kind of half awake, and I thought... Why is like, did somebody who portrayed me in something get nominated? <laughs> is this like, what kind of joke? And I open the link and, and it's like creative arts Emmys and the commercials and I, my heart's racing and I'm scrolling and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, we were nominated for a, can I say fucking? Fucking yeah, Emmy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty insane. So a good way to start the day. That's excellent. Yeah. In Australia. What'd you do the rest of the day in Australia? Just, you know, did a jig. (laughs) Told people she was nominated for an Emmy. Exactly. Emmy nominee. I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that. (laughs) Where are you going to put it if you win? Um, I'm going to put it on the hood of my car. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great idea. That would be rad. So this will be my first time at the Creative Arts Emmys. Yeah. Which is insane. Right. That's really insane. It's really, it's very cool. And let's talk about the piece itself, which is nominated. And you get, this is actually quite a, like a stacked field. There's a lot of really great things in here, but this is my favorite, just to be honest, just I'm coming right out with it. Um, But it's such a really fascinating, brilliant idea that you guys had in this piece of content. What do we call it? An ad, a PSA, a video? All of the above. Okay. At first, it's disturbing because I didn't realize mm-hmm. that the people getting bullied yeah. are actors, yeah. right? And yeah. they're like crying. Well, we de- we debated that a lot. It's like, when do you reveal who's in on it and who's not? I'm glad you revealed it because I was getting anxious. Yeah. And it, yeah. it relieved my anxiety right. when I saw that they weren't. But, but basically, just for those at home who haven't seen it, it is bullies who are actors bullying targets who are actors using real language from from tweets, yeah. right? Verbatim. Yeah. What happens is this kind of by, reverse, thank God, like reverse bystander effect. You think of the bystander mm. effect being yeah. like, everyone's just like, not my problem. And in actually all these cases, somebody says, hey, cut it out or get out of here or do you need a hug? But let me ask you something. <laughs> did that happen as, like, how often did that not happen? Because it's New York. I think it happened a lot more than we could, a lot more than we could put in the film. Right. Right. I think it was very unusual to have the scenarios where someone didn't do something. Even one of the, one of the parts that I really wanted in there, but we didn't have time was there was actually in the um, scenario with the three young girls who are the school girls who are targeting the other young school girl. There was a guy who was on his bike and he kind of, stopped and he didn't cross when he was supposed to cross and he kind of just hung out there and he didn't say anything. But when the two girls who were engaging in bullying behavior left, he went over to her to see if she was okay, the girl mm. who was at Target. Yeah. And that was really important too in, in terms of the message because I think this top line note was about, you know, really getting people to rethink this online versus offline behavior. But the second is how valuable and important it is to, to step in, whether you step in while something's happening or after the fact. Yeah. There's a lot of value there so that someone yeah. mm-hmm. feels seen and not alone. I was just, I was so grateful. Not surprised Brooklynites were like that empathetic, but I was, it, it yeah, is gratifying. It's really that know. third person in, in the conversation, the person that's not involved, but the person that steps in that really brings in this idea that empathy is is the thing that solves this, right? Yeah. And that, and that it really brings the spotlight to the idea that um, your behavior online is completely unacceptable, in real life. So why do you behave like that? It's interesting. I had a um, Twitter exchange with someone. uh, Somebody had written about, they had just gotten into blocking behavior. Like at first they didn't want to do it. And I'm very, I'm very pro-blocking. Blocking Blocking is beautiful. Hmm. Um, I saw that hashtag (laughs) on your tweet. Yeah. Uh Uh, We have an emoji of it actually. (laughs) Um, But what I, what somebody responded in there was you wouldn't stand in a room and let people yell awful things at you, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. true. Yeah. Unless it's your family. But, you yeah, know? well, right. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but then you have other problems. Uh, but I think that kind of reflects that same sentiment here of just like 
protect yourself and take care of yourself. You have every right you know, to do that. So. Well, I'm glad that it turned out that way because I feel like if you had done it in New Jersey, where I'm from, people might have just joined in and ganged yeah. up on the person. Well, <laughs> I think the culture would have you think that, right? You know, but no, it's, I, people yeah. are actually a lot more caring than you get. Than we, <laughs> yeah. we tend, we, we New Yorkers tend to give them credit for. Actually, there's one guy in there. We had to stop a fight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I had just gotten on set. I was actually waiting on the corner till you guys were finished. And yeah, yeah. it was the it was the it, it was the cafeteria or the the one where the um the bystanders red shirt guy. Yeah, he's outside the window as two people are getting bullied inside the cafe. And actually, he almost got in a fight with the bully, and we had to put like a production assistant that got out, ran out immediately, and jump between them and go, no, 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 no. This, this is the guy who's yeah. in the ad. Yeah, he's yeah, still exactly. away from that yeah, window. Yeah, yeah, it got, literally, yeah. it was like yeah. the arm was that back ready like for it was, the <laughs> punch. I mean, yeah. it was... That's which, a good Easter egg. Yeah. yeah. No, we have it. It's good. <laughs> but it yeah. also, you know, I think it was also heartwarming, too, you know, that that and representative of just how much we we can care about other people who are strangers. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, and so Mm -hmm. how do we harness that more, particularly in the online world? So tell me how this was shot. Was it all done in one day and in one borough? It was all done in one day, different locations around Brooklyn. Brooklyn. It was all in different parts of Brooklyn. Different parts of Brooklyn. It was hidden camera in... It was multiple cameras. Win Bates was the director. Yes. yes. Okay. Shout out to Win. Yeah. We should mention everyone. It was a whole team of creative people and production people that put this thing together. But logistically, it was a little bit of a, of a frightening prospect because we never we didn't know who was going to intervene and what the response would be. So right. it was a bit of a, um, a, a risk there. But uh, we got some pretty authentic stuff. Like I said, we almost got in a fight, so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you were there, Monica. I, I was there, not for the whole day, but I was there right. for a good portion of it. And, and in fact, actually, I think that just even from my own experiences of the stuff we saw, we talked the next day about trying to find ways to make some therapists even available for the for anybody, whether it was crew who had been involved or any of the actors, because right. it was pretty. If you yeah. think about it, I mean, it was really it was really intense, and I think it was it was challenging for the actors to engage in this kind of behavior yeah. that that was anathema to everybody. Well, it's. Right, because you're asking somebody to sit there and have someone else say, you should kill yourself because of yeah. some character trait that you right. may have. We, you know? we, we really made a point of of using the, the comments verbatim. Like, we didn't have them yeah. improv at all, any of these things. So it was just all these comments were, mm-hmm. were taken offline. I mean, I know I teared up quite a few times that day, and I think there were several other people. I mean, it was, and I just, you know, I want to I wanna thank BBDO New York and Greg and his whole team. I mean, they really went above and beyond, not just sort of great creative, but everybody who worked on this and everybody in in Dini's office, um, to everybody put their heart into this. And I think that is part of what has why it's connected with people is yeah. because there was so much care and authentic concern uh, behind this. So. And who had to chase everybody around with waivers? <laughs> yeah, well, could, we could shout out that person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That had they to be amazing. like a cat herding uh, operation. Yeah. yeah. Extraordinary. And we, we also made, made sure that we blocked out a lot of the bystanders' faces. So we, yeah. you know. That was really important to us of just, I think, and, and I think actually that's one of the other things um, that was interesting to me about the process too, uh, was really how many layers of sensitivity we had to have with this also so yeah. that we wanted to be really responsible that if, you know, there was somebody who was sitting in the cafe who who didn't respond, who didn't turn around, that they wouldn't then feel shamed right. by not, you know, by not yes. having their face blurred. Yeah. Um, so there were just so many, I think, different layers of, of how we wanted to think about this. And I think what's impressive is you thought through all those layers and yet the thing that comes across is very bold and fierce. Do you know what I mean? You can kind yeah. of gum something like that to death yeah. worrying about it, but you but you came through with something very so potent. It was a very fine line to walk on all, all those fronts. Yeah, but, um, I can imagine. There were a couple discussions, yeah. but yeah. I think that was the benefit of the kind of the creative and the advocacy, like, of yeah. our sides coming together. We've been working with Monica for over a year now, right? Mm-hmm. It's started a little bit over a year. And she came to us with this great insight about bullying She's been working on this this cause for some time, and she wanted somebody to um, help her bring this to life and and get it out there to the public. And just working back and forth with her over the few weeks that we we spent in rooms and, and things together, we um, came upon this execution that is 
basically based on the idea of how people treat people differently in person than they do online. Yeah. When, when people get online, they're completely disassociated with that person and they treat yeah. people honestly in ways that you you would you would never have the courage or or lack of grace to do in in person. So I thought that was a really great place to start and a really great insight. Then we just decided um, what's the best way to to kind of blow that out and, and get people to see it, and what's the best way to bring that to life in a video form. And that's that's kind of where we we started. Where Greg is being very generous is that I actually came with the insight and my own creative idea, <laughs> yeah. which uh, which thankfully my ego let me put aside to go with the, the genius. <laughs> well, can creatives. you tell us what it is? What what your idea was? Yeah, it was actually it wasn't a bad Let's idea. It. it was a okay. thought starter. It was a good insight. It, it, I'll give her that. Thank you. Uh, it actually started in Central Park, where uh, I saw a marathon happening, and I just noticed. How interesting it was um, to see strangers cheering for strangers. Yeah. And so I thought, God, this is an incredible social behavior that we have, that we do this. Yeah. And yet, why don't we do that online? So my idea was like very literal, <laughs> given where the idea started, which was sort of, you know, cuts of um, all this real life marathon footage of people cheering for strangers. And then you'd sort of have this marathon that you tape and you'd kind of have people running and someone would yell, you know, hey, you look fat in those shorts or go run in your own country, right. you know, so these kinds of things that we see online, but trying to communicate this idea of uh, how strange it would be. We, we, yes. we would never see something like that, you know, at a, at, in marathon behavior in this kind of offline world. So um, they humored me for a little while and then... Well, but, but I mean, <laughs> I think it's... it's I, I appreciate you sharing the where it started because I think a lot of people at home, you know, they may not be in this business and and not understand how the creative process works. And and often it is like, you know, you start with a great insight and you're you're like 75% of the way there at that point. And then... But yeah, then, then we just take built it off there. Because there was, there was something really interesting in the, the, the insight of the behavior difference and how weird it would be to see that in real life. Right. Right, so that that's a great start. But BBDO New York knocked it out of the park with the creative. Yeah, so, so we'll, and they we'll, have. To, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt, Greg. Yeah, sorry, yeah. but they have two ads nominated for the Emmys this year. I did notice that. Yeah. Does so, that, does that uh, cause you problems? Um, I'm torn inside. No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I would be I would be happy if either of the pieces won. But since um, we're here. I'm going to say I really hope this one wins. Yeah. No, I do. I honestly, <laughs> honestly, this one has a special... I was very close to this one. And, um, you know, regardless if it wins or not, I, I think it's done done its piece in the work in the world. So, you know, I'm happy about that. I have a question for you. What do you think of this civility debate that's going on where people are saying, you know, you shouldn't kick uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders out of a restaurant or something like that? Do you have... Do you feel like that's a separate conversation? Is that related? <laughs> that is a hard question because I, I think that it, it depends on if it's disrupting the business then maybe. But I, I tend to think that people should just be treated equally. Right. You know, I, I mean, as I hard think, as it is at times to accept some some things, it's yeah. it's everybody's right to be treated equally. I, I would agree with that. I also think, too, that there, there are a lot of concentric circles of the kinds of social behavior we're seeing today. And so I think that maybe falls into one, the ways, the different ways that um, we see uh, cyberbullying or online harassment, all of those kinds of things are, are other concentric circles. And I think this falls into one, yeah. um, that there's... Uh, there's a way to express an opinion and then there's um, ways ways which I think if you put yourself uh, in the person's shoes or you flip, usually these are political things. So if you flip the political ideology, yeah. um, I mean, and that kind of goes to so much of the hypocrisy we see, which is challenging now yeah. too. Yeah. It's a bit of a, a slippery slope. If, if, if it's okay to kick her out, then who else? And then who else? And then suddenly right. it's you, you know, right. it's, it's so we, we, I think the better call to arms is peace, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I noticed on your Twitter, one thing that you do that I would really struggle to have the greatness of mind to do which is when someone sort of snarks at you and says like actually whatever you say why don't you t please tell me more about what you're thinking i'd like to know your perspective how hard is that does that come easily to you well you is should that... see my drafts <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I, I can imagine I, yeah yeah I, it's interestingly 
I actually think that's where the distance on the internet helps sometimes yeah. is that, you know, if you can find the ability to sort of just take a breath and take a step back. Yeah. Um, I recognize people come to a lot of conversations charged. It's really easy to misinterpret people's tone or intentions yeah. and what they're saying online. So, yeah, I, th- I think that when you sort of come at people with a, a more measured pace, it allows them to, to have more room to reconsider or to think about explaining. And, and really, I mean, isn't that the whole – that's when social media is at its best, right. when people can engage in conversations and you can learn something. So you may not change your perspective, but to have a better understanding of a different perspective, I yeah. mean, that's that's really yeah. valuable, yeah. I think, in today's world. So Well, it does seem like it, it disarms people. When you sometimes. do that, right? <laughs> okay, sometimes <laughs> in the cases I've seen. And then, you know, like you say, like you, you add to the general understanding in the world uh, rather than subtracting to it by getting into a, a flame war. So that's helpful. I think Twitter or any of these social media sites should have like a, a pause button where if you reply, it says, are you sure you want to send this? There's an amazing young woman, Trisha Prabhu, who made this software. And her software is called Rethink. And it's all about if you use certain words... It will pop up and and a prompt will ask you, Hmm. are you sure you want to use those words? Those are sometimes offensive or inflammatory, those sorts Mm. of things. And in her research, 95% of the people who had that pop up chose not to use Hmm. those words. Imagine if Jack just put that in. Yeah, you know. Imagine, exactly. Yeah. Hello, yeah. Jack. Hello, Jack. <laughs> we are have you a out there? For you. <laughs> so I have lots of suggestions. <laughs> so can we can we talk a little bit about your how you came to the bullying cause? I mean, you 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 wrote that you've written that there's a version of you that's out there that you can't really reclaim. But one thing that's interesting about this film is it ties into something you said, which is that you rarely had people say anything to your face in all those years, right? Yeah. I, it was amazing when, when we were working on this and um, I realized that I could maybe count on one, maybe two hands, the amount of times that people have been rude to me to my face. Yeah, um, you actually said that to us in the briefing and that was like a huge light again that came off yeah. it's like yeah if you stop and think about it you're absolutely right I, I don't know if anyone's ever insulted me to my face but I get stuff online you know yeah and I, I, I think that when I thought of it in those terms it was not only surprising to me but I think it was surprising for a lot of other people to think given you know kind of the public propertyness of mm-hmm. my identity that was sort of out there for a long time um So I I think it does speak to, you know, one of the things which is interesting is this is all still relatively new, you know, social media and and our online behavior, particularly with social media. And I think that we just haven't really found a lot of the social norms yet or the social etiquette for all of this. And I I hope we will eventually get there. And that's one of the ways what I think the spot is you know, aim to doing is to getting people to be thinking about how does that work? Well, and it's interesting because you, you've also written that you were basically the first kind of casualty of the internet, right? In the sense that the Drudge Report is is par- part of what took your story and made it a global thing. Right. So, so you kind of were early to this yeah, crazy world early. that we're all kind of living in now. Right, which I think is, um, you know, and that was a big part of what propelled me to where I am now today was really kind of what had happened with Tyler Clementi and uh, who was a college freshman who had been secretly webcam by his roommate being intimate with another man. And when that became public, uh, he was so ridiculed um, that he tragically took his own life a few days later. And I, I talk about this in the TED Talk, but the experience of that was a real wake up call for me too around this idea of um, oh, this is happening now to people who don't even make a mistake. You know, that this is not, you know, and this is happening more and more on social media and we don't, we kind of don't have those conversations. I remember when I was bullied, it was like, you know, either getting pushed around in person or it's like prank phone calls. <laughs> right, right. But th- these are public displays, that's, right, of humiliation. what makes it feel so hurtful of it, yeah. is that you feel like the whole world knows you're, right. you're getting bullied. Yeah. And psychologically, too, there's, you know, there's no hard perimeter around those kinds of things. Like, if I make a faux pas right now, hopefully Daniel 
will edit it out. Yes. But I, I'm be you know embarrassed in front of everybody in the room. And th- there's a border around that. Yes. But on the internet, you have no mm-hmm. idea how many people you know, and you're already now in a sensitive state, and it really. It's very easy to imagine the whole world is laughing at you. Yeah. And and that can be really psychologically destructive. So some of our listeners are young people who are really into film and probably sensitive, and they might be dealing with some of the stuff that, you know, that happens to young people. So what message do you have for, for them if they're being bullied, if they're experiencing this? Um, I think my first, the first thing I'd say to anybody, you know, young or not so young is to not suffer in silence. So to sell, to tell someone. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that's really the most important first step. So, but second to that is kind of depending on your own personality. I think there's an element of trying to hold on to who you are Mm -hmm. in many ways. And I think that's where the importance of friends and family can come in is kind of reflecting back to you, your true self and keeping you moored to sort of who, you know, your true self to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and there are a lot of different techniques. And I think one of the things that we, and it's kind of demonstrated in, in the short film too, is that there are a lot of different ways or different paths to go about this. So, um, you know, and what works for one person may not work for someone else. So be open to this idea of, um, I think, trying to find different things. If you try one solution and it doesn't seem to work for you, look for something else. There, There's mm-hmm. a lot out there. There are a lot of people who are working to try to shift this culture. One thing through this, we're just trying to show people is that they're not alone. It happens. Yeah. It happens to a lot of it. The fact that this has so, become so, you know, quote unquote viral just shows you that people are, are identifying with it. And, and so many people do suffer in silence, but I think the more we bring this out to light and show that, you know, this is, this is something that happens to everybody and it, it's something you can share. And if, you, if you're experiencing that, then, you know, the best thing to do is, is talk to somebody if you're feeling alone. We talk about the people being bullied and how to make them feel less alone. What about the bullies? Like, do they really do they change when they see this? Are they are they shamed at all? Well, that or? was a big that was a big part of the audience was yeah. uh, was to make people reconsider. And I don't think you know the hardcore bullies are going to change that much. But to people, ninety percent of the bu- people quote unquote bu- bullies are just making rude comments, and you that right, they don't know how how hurtful they are. Right. I think I think it will definitely think- stop. The, that that kind of thing. I think it makes people rethink. Yeah. Um, but I also think too that there's, and this is not true in every case, but I do think that there um, there are a large number of people who engage in this kind of disruptive behavior and harmful behavior because they themselves are hurting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that there's a, and oftentimes they themselves have been bullied. Mm-hmm. So um, it might be because of reasons at home or in other experiences. Um, so I think that there's, you know, this is a, people often ask me like, what are the three things we can do to fix this? And it's <laughs> like, this is a really complex morass of a problem yeah. that, um, and and I think that the people who engage in bullying behavior are very much a part of that conversation. So yeah. um, I, I hope they watch this PSA and I hope they, you know, think about how they can be just a little bit better. I think for me, the most rewarding thing that's come from this was we heard that a teacher had shown the uh, short film in her class. And at the end of the school year, when they sort of wrote out their um, the questionnaire from the year, a lot of them wrote seeing this film was one of the most memorable moments of their year. Wow. Which is wow. just, um, I mean, you kind of can't ask mm-hmm. for anything more rewarding. Yeah, that's amazing. And really thinking about the far reach that we had with this, too, and that it was not only kind of trending on YouTube, but also had across all these different platforms, you know, 27 million views. 27 million? Yeah. That's a lot. Right. That's a lot of people. And and I've been I've incorporated <laughs> it into my talk. And it's um, first, it's amazing to me because I've now seen this, you know, probably a bajillion times. Yeah. And I tear up every time. Um, but it's also something that people come up to me after the talks to really comment on. And I can see people wiping away tears in the audience. So it's just, I think what it says to all of us in a big way is um, that there's there's a lot of pain out there yeah. right now from this. And I think even for maybe our vintage that there's sort of this pain from when we were younger when we went through these things and there were, really weren't conversations around them. 
And um, I think we kind of, we carry that with us for a long time. So um, I hope, I hope it helps heal people. All right. Well, thanks so much for, for coming by. And I really appreciate it. Uh, it's always great to see you. And uh, good luck. Thank you for Not having us. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. thanks, guys. Thank you. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Uh, thank you for listening. Next week, we're going to catch up with Richard and Mike about what they saw at Telluride. So please stick with us. It's a great time to tell other people to listen to the show. Um, you can find us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It really helps. You can find us all on VanityFair.com. Writing about all of these movies, you can find Richard's uh, preview. And you can also find the uh, Monica Lewinsky uh, PSA on VF.com as well. Uh, you can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard? Right Laws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best description of having all four of us back on the show goes to Mike Hogan. Yet normal people are enjoying the weirdness of it. <laughs>